One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jenikin. Hey. I feel like it's been like two months. I have no idea why. It seems like forever, but it hasn't been. No, it's been a week. <laughs> I don't know what It does happened. feel like it's been... It feels like so long. I yeah. don't know what's going on. And we were just together yesterday. Was it yesterday? Who knows? I don't even, I think so. I don't even yeah, know we what's happening. Because um, we did the mini from last week, last night. Sorry. So maybe we're just all discombobulated. Yeah. And I'm still like a little sick. Well, luckily I'm talking a lot tonight, so... It's Desi's week. Desi, should I thank our Patreon? Of course contributors, subscribers from this past week. We have a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene for a few bucks a month. You can have access to a bunch of bonus content that's only available on Patreon. You can have access to our ad-free episodes. So if you're listening to this and you're like, God, this is a great episode, except for those fucking ads... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Go to Patreon or and 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 or and or it's all and and if you subscribe to our Patreon, you will have access to our Discord server. Which is going it's popping off. It's popping off. <laughs> you can chat with Desi and I on the Discord server. We're on there. We're on there. We're, people are posting pics of their cats. We post recipes, pics. chat chit chatting about all the all the things. Yeah. Desi might show feet. Who knows what's going to happen on Discord? You're going to have to up to the uh, additional level on Patreon. We don't know. <laughs> we have to create it. Anyway, that's patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Allison, Emmy Lou, Craig, Kelly, Devere, Perig- Peregrine, Madeline, Kelly, Missy, Re- Rebecca, Ruan, Pamela, Jorane, Jessica, Cat Birthday, Christina, Rebecca, Becca, Kiara, and Leslie. Thank you all very much. Thanks. I just saw Cat Birthday on Discord. I did too. It's a great name. <laughs> yeah, it's very. I was. I actually was like, oh, is it her cat's birthday? I that too. Because <laughs> I, I just got her name. Because I just got the notification on my phone. I was like, whose cat's birthday I is know. it? Because that's a. I, I was like, I need to say hello, happy birthday to, to the this cat. cat. Uh, <laughs> that's my life. So since we've had a more modern focus lately, I feel like our past few stories have been sort of more recent or at least like 90s recent. Yeah. I thought I would do another old Hollywood classic. Yay. So this week we are going to discuss actor Wallace Reed. He was a very popular silent film star referred to as the screen's most perfect lover. He was lusted over by women and equally admired by men as one of the first action movie stars. He worked with all the biggest names of that era, including Cecil B. DeMille, Dorothy and Lillian Gish, and Gloria Swanson. And he was really up there with other big names of the day, like Mary Pickford. But today, he might be best remembered as an entry in one of our favorite books, Hollywood Babylon. Yes. 
So along with Fatty Arbuckle and William Desmond Taylor, he is considered to be the third piece of the early Hollywood trinity of scandals. We covered those other two cases like very early on in our run. So it's long past time to do this third one. My sources for this were a few books, including Silent Stars by Janine Bassinger, E.J. Fleming's Wallace Reed, The Life and Death of a Hollywood Idol. I also looked through some old newspaper articles as well as a newer piece from WeHoville on the Hacienda Park um, neighborhood that's kind of like in WeHo. Yeah. Um, that, that article was by John Ponder. Um, this was like actually an early celebrity enclave developed in the 1920s. Uh, so we also, I, I'm sorry, we, I watched a documentary as well called Hollywood, a celebration of the American silent film. That's very good. It was 13 parts. I did not watch all 13 <laughs> parts, but it goes into the whole thing. Yeah. Like if you want an in-depth look at that, I think it was a BBC documentary. I found it on YouTube. It's definitely um, a classic. It's like pops up in any silent film discussion online. So if you're into that, I'm definitely, I think I'm going to go back into it because I was thinking like, as with Wallace Reed, a lot of these movies just don't exist anymore. They're they're lost films. They're lost films. And that's why we don't know people like Wallace Reed because his movies literally do not exist anymore. Right. uh, Maybe some of them do. So... Yeah, I mean, this documentary seems like it's uh, really interesting and maybe we'll find some good stories to cover by watching it. So let's get into this case, which is actually far more interesting than I remembered it being. Uh, There's a lot to get into. So Wallace Wally Reed was born in a trunk, as they say. Uh, they, say, they do? <laughs> yeah, who that's what they that? call people who are born into showbiz families. Oh. They're like born in a trunk. Isn't there a whole dance number in A Star is Born? Oh. Where Judy Garland's like in a trunk. Okay. Because she's like a show, a vaudeville folk, yeah. right? He was born in 1892. His mother, Bertha, was an actress. And his father, Hal, was considered one of Broadway's most promising playwrights at the time. He was a writer. His parents would often leave him with his grandma when they would tour. And it was during one of these stays that he experienced a life-changing event, the 1896 St. Louis Cyclone. This was a devastating natural disaster that left his neighborhood, as well as many others, completely like flattened and destroyed. Homes were just like to the ground. His mother, I'm sorry, him and his grandmother were literally in the basement during this storm, like praying for their lives. And they survived. They like walked out of the basement one day to the flattened neighborhood, like that kind of experience. And he was really changed after this event. He's only four years old at the time. He was now way more mature. He was sort of a child that was beyond his years because he had been through some shit. Like, and he's like, I don't want to hang out with kids anymore. I'm like an adult. Like he had that kind of persona as a child. This also ignited his imagination and, and in turn his theatrical and artistic spirit. That same year, he had his first small part in one of his dad's plays. When he graduated from prep school, he expressed an interest in becoming a surgeon and thus began his lifelong interest in medicine and pharmaceuticals. His parents really wanted him to go to college to pursue becoming a doctor, but Wally was still not sure. While pondering his next move, he had a walk-on part in one of his dad's plays, and he really loved the attention this time, so much so that Bertha panicked and 
she did not want her son going into the family business. She wanted to be a doctor. Like, <laughs> Make some real money. Yes, do something with your life. His mother decided the best thing to do was get him out of New York City, the New York City theater world. And at the age of 17, he was sent out west to stay with May, the sister of Buffalo Bill Cody in Whoa. Wyoming. This was like an old family friend. Little did they know <laughs> that yeah. the film industry would soon move out west. Well, this was in Wyoming. Little did they know. <laughs> so kind of Westerner. Wait, he moved to Wyoming first from New York? Yes. Okay. So she was like hard labor on a ranch. It's going to make him beg to go back to college Like once he's doing that. He helped May run her little hotel. And it was through this position that he began befriending all of the ruffians who would stop by. They taught him how to shoot a gun, ride a horse, fight with your bare hands, drink. So he was like, this is fun as hell. Uh, he's like wilding out <laughs> in the old west. <laughs> and Bertha began to regret her decision. But Wally refused to come home. He was having a life of adventure. Then he's got like rock hard abs now. Oh, yeah. He's hot. So his parents eventually lured him back to New York by telling their son that Bertha was dying. That was not true. In fact, when he arrived, she was just out shopping. So once he was back, he still refused to go to college, and he became a reporter instead. He eventually was hired to write about one of his passions, automobiles. I'm sorry. This guy became a reporter after being a cowboy? Is yeah. he like Barbie? He's totally... How he many so jobs many has this guy had? <laughs> And he was almost a doctor. Does yeah. that count? Because he still has an interest. He's going to be an astronaut No, this next. guy's a real jack of all trades. Like, <laughs> he does it all. And that's why he's kind of hot. Because everyone's like, he's good at everything. Like, right. Um, he's that guy. So he becomes assistant editor at Motor Magazine covering races. And he himself is a little bit of a speed demon. He likes racing cars. But showbiz was always in the back of his mind. And when an opportunity arose, he took it. His father had written a one-act play to be performed on the vaudeville circuit. When a cast member dropped out last minute, Wally agreed to fill in. Obviously, his mother was against it, but she was overruled. As the tour ended, the father and son duo ended up in Chicago, and there Hal took a meeting at the Selig Polyscope Film Studio. He signs on there to create story treatments. Now, during this period, and, and Wallace Reed's life kind of coincides with this emerging mo motion picture. It's like a classic case of like the right time, being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And his age is just the right age for this stuff too. And he's kind of a Nepo baby. Kind of, I guess. His dad, he, his dad put him in a play. I mean, It's just not the same as now though. No. Because <laughs> they're still he, poor. He's, <laughs> he's an old school. He's an yeah, old school. Yeah. But they're not a wealthy family. So I guess I always consider Nepo to be like rich too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're connected, I guess. So, uh, so the motion picture industry is slowly taking over this theatrical world. Hal is convinced it's the future of entertainment. It is. Um, so he begins writing for the studio. He acts with them as well. And he even gets Wally hired as kind of a jack of all trades. He, he works as a writer, a cameraman, he directs, and he occasionally is also persuaded to go in front of the camera. He, and he's really persuaded. He doesn't really have an interest in acting. He's definitely more like, Oh, I want to direct that kind of guy. Yeah. He's the original, but what I really want to do is direct. <laughs> guy. So when he's asked why he got into the movie business, he said because he was curious. He loved trying new things, and this period was still very experimental, like 
things were changing all the time. The technology was constantly advancing and being perfected. And these production companies were always in the process of trying to figure out what was appealing to the public, like what did they want to see? So there was a lot of action. They eventually moved back to New York and start working for Vitagraph, another production studio. And although Wally was more interested in the technical side of the things, this studio also wanted uh, to have him work in front of the camera. He was pretty easygoing about it. Um, He needed the money, obviously. And he became one of Vitagraph's most popular actors. Part of his appeal is he had a really hot body. He had like the ideal male physique at that time. Yeah. You know how some, it's like you see it and you're like, that's an old fashioned hot body. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. like not what we think of now. Right. Um, but Vitagraph made sure he was in these films with as little clothing on as possible. He spoke of one particular outfit that was basically a string of beads and a leopard skin. That's hot. Uh, and thousands of horny girls lined up to see him half naked. They like wanted to see this guy basically in the nude. Yeah. In 1911, after a broken engagement, uh, a depressed Wally needed to leave the East Coast. And that's when he decided to head to the real West, all the way West to Hollywood, which was quickly becoming the motion picture capital of the world. There he would find success beyond his wildest dreams and the love of his life. Once he was in Hollywood, he quickly began making pictures, once again, doing it all, camera work, writing, and of course, acting. He meets a young actress named Dorothy Davenport uh, during this period. Uh, They were cast opposite each other as love interests in a film, and Dorothy found him to be a terrible actor and left angry after their first first day on the set. So you know they're going to fuck soon. Of course. (laughs) It's the classic uh, meet cute. Uh, In a later interview, she said that she actually thought the casting was audacious. She she was 17 at the time, and she had never had a love interest that was less than 30. And she was like, how dare you cast a 19-year-old <laughs> opposite <laughs> me? Men don't become men until they're almost 30. Like yeah. That was her opinion back then. But the next day, after she watched him wrangle a horse for a bit, she did a complete 180 because he was hot. Yeah. And she uh, knew it, but she didn't want him to know she knew it. When she found out that he needed a better boarding situation, she and her mother, Alice, uh, invited him and another actor to share their home with him. <laughs> That's one way to get a guy. And it was there that the relationship between them really blossomed. She was impressed at how he was so accomplished at nearly everything, even stating that like he'd be doing something and always in his hand he had a ham sandwich. So not only could he do everything, mm. but he could do it while holding a sandwich, which is very hot. It is hot. One day when they were on their weekly horseback ride through Griffith Park, by the way, he used to ride a horse to work. <laughs> that's like Holly. That's how long ago this is. I, I mean, yeah, it, we've talked about this. It People was, were riding horses. This was a very rural town. Yeah. So he would ride his horse to work on the set. And like, I guess they had like a, a horse rack wherever you tied them up or something. <laughs> like a bike Like rack. in the Wild West. <laughs> right. Yes. They always have that like blog. Uh, yeah. It's, it's outside of the saloon. <laughs> it's outside of the saloon. I know how horses work. So on this <laughs> horseback ride, this is a romantic horseback ride. He says to her at some point, well, I guess it would be nice if we got married. 
I mean, that's how people did it then. That's how they did it. But Dorothy rejected him. Wow. She's like, no, we're too young. And he was heartbroken. But he did have a determination to possibly marry her one day. He kept asking. She kept saying no. And he finally gave up. He was humiliated. Uh, And he decided to move to Santa Barbara and start working for the American Film Company. And Dorothy stayed in L.A. and began working for Thomas Entz at the KB Film Company. But absence made her heart grow fonder, and Dorothy began to miss rejecting Wally's proposals. (laughs) When he was back in L.A. in 1913, working with Universal, she was determined to win back his affection. These feelings of love escalated for Dorothy when she heard that he had been injured um, riding horseback on a film set and severely damaged his leg, like the um, riding, what's it called? The saddle? The whole the yeah. whole workup, like all of it, fell on his leg and like pinned his leg down. Yeah. So it's a pretty bad injury. Um, and she it like triggered her maternal instincts. She moved over to Universal so she could be near him again. And they were cast in a picture together. Eventually, their relationship immediately rekindled. And Wally was too scared to be rejected again, decided he would wait for Dorothy to suggest marriage. Once she did, the marriage was set. Despite his mother's disapproval, Wally knew Dorothy was the woman for him. In October of 1913, the couple tied the knot. There was no honeymoon as both of them immediately went back to the film grind. They were making like 10 to 20 films a year. That's how they These are these short reels. Yeah. So this is that period where all of them are very short, but there's a fucking ton of them. So Wally really wanted to get out of acting still and his focus... um, he had like he wanted to get into writing and directing still. So when he had the opportunity to be an actor at the production studio of the most innovative director working at the time, he jumped at the chance just to be near him. That director was D.W. Griffith. Uh, he <laughs> did not make the wham bam thank you ma'am shorts. He was trying to elevate the art form and create longer pictures. So this was a next-level production facility, and Wally was completely enamored with the way films were produced at Mutual. These techniques enhanced his abilities as as a performer and really allowed him to grow as an artist, writer, and director. When Griffith began plans to use all of his skills to make the biggest and best feature-length film ever, in his opinion, Wally was completely on board, and pre-production on The Klansmen began. Now... I'm not going to get too much into D.W. Griffith right now. That might be a future episode at some point. Right. But most of you are probably aware that this movie, The Klansman, also known as Birth of the Nation, uh, it was a very innovative film at the time, and it really changed the industry. But it's an incredibly racist film that portrays the Ku Klux Klan as heroes. It has white people in blackface doing derogatory stereotypes. It's just awful. Right. But filming on that began in summer of 1914 and starred Griffith's muse, Lillian Gish. Now, Wally was disappointed to not be cast as one of the male leads. He almost replaced the lead when that actor got sick. But when the actor got better, the role was taken from Wally and his scenes were scrapped, the ones he had filmed. Griffith assured him he would give him a killer yet small part as Jeff the Blacksmith Jeff has a really big fight scene in the movie where he single-handedly beats a large group of black men in a fight before being shot and killed while shirtless by one of those black men from that group. This scene really illustrates 
Griffith's racist views by positioning Wally as sort of the symbol of American of the American male ideal and then having a black American kill him is sort of like Griffith's way of saying black people are a threat to American values. So right. that's basically what this movie is about. So Dorothy said Wally is also used in the epilogue as an uncredited Christ-like figure who symbolizes the peaceful rejoining of the North and South and blah, blah, blah. I mean, this movie is just a piece of shit. <laughs> this movie gets released at the time and is a massive hit because no, it's over two hours and no one had seen a movie that, that was that long. Right. It was even screened for our racist president, Woodrow Wilson. That's how big it was. Don't come at me if you're a Woodrow Wilson stan. Please, I do not please care. Please don't. Um, and Griffith was right. This small part ended up being a fan favorite and made him a bona fide superstar. People were marveling at this perfect physique and good looks. Now, his performance in Birth of the Nation caught the eye of Cecil B. DeMille, and he eventually moved over to the company that Cecil had started with Jesse Lasky. They wanted to pair him up with superstar opera singer Geraldine Farah, on three pictures, including Carmen, which was her big opera hit, and that would become a film, like a worldwide smash film. But he was also a star. It wasn't just her pulling in these people because his films after the Carmen also did like big, huge box office and were smash hits. He even at this time started having crazed female fans who would throw themselves at him, would stalk him at the studio, do what they could to lure him away from Dorothy to no avail. Um, despite it all, he remained down to earth and humble, according to those who knew him. After all, according to him, these early movie days, everyone was still kind of thinking this could end at any time and people are going to move on to the next fad. Wally also knew his career would be gone as soon as his face and bod went. He's like, I'm like a, um, like, oh God, not a Gibson girl, like, but like a Rockette, like one of those type, what's the girls at the time? A Zigfield girl. Zigfield. Sorry. Um, so... When not working in pictures, like I said, he was very interested in automobiles, uh, and he would speed through town in one of his fancy cars. In 2000, I'm sorry, 2015, no, 1915, while driving with pal Thomas Ince, he crashed into another car on the PCH, killing a father and seriously injuring the mother and child in the car. Thomas N suffered a broken collarbone and internal injuries, and Wally basically walked away unscathed, as well as not even being charged with anything due to the accident. D.W. Griffith bailed him out of jail. In 1916, Dorothy becomes pregnant, and she gives up her acting career to focus on becoming a full-time mom. Their son, William Wallace Reed Jr., known as Billy, is born in the summer of 2017, Twenty-seven. Oh my God, nineteen seventeen. Sorry, and at the same time, World War One is happening, and yeah. and Wally wants to go into the and he wants to enlist, but his wife is like, hell no! You like you have a young family. Uh, he's also supporting his family, his parents, right? And he doesn't want to. They don't want him to lose that mo- movie income to go serve in the war and possibly die. Uh, so she convinces, Dorothy convinces him to stay. She's like, you can go later if they really need you. <laughs> Let's see what happens. And this really haunted him because he really felt like he should have done more and he was never okay with this decision. Now, while he's safe at home earning movie star money, Dorothy eventually turns all of her attention to building their new mansion on Sweetser and La- Delongpre. 
That's where that house is, Hacienda Park, it was called back then. Neighbors in the new development included actor William S. Hart and director William Desmond Taylor before he was in his apartment building. Um, Demille and Lasky's company was now known as Paramount and was being run with Adolf Zucker. So he... They they also landed another big star, a rising comedy star named Fatty Arbuckle. This will actually play into Wallace's story eventually. But at this point in time, by all accounts, Wallace Reed really had everything going for him. Unfortunately, his life was about to change for the worst in a major way on the set of his next movie, Valley of the Giants. And we will take a break here and come back with more. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm the queen of starting a free trial offer and forgetting to cancel it, oftentimes being charged for months for something I'm not even using. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. With Rocket Money, I can see all of my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, I can cancel it with a tap. I never have to get on the phone with customer service. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill, and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. It's definitely saved me money and now I can use that money to waste on things I do want. So stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. That's rocketmoney.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. On March 2nd, 1919, the cast and crew of Valley of the Giants were traveling by train to an Oregon location. While passing over a rickety bridge, the caboose skipped a track and fell off the bridge, causing the rest of the train to jackknife and follow the caboose off the bridge, landing on its side 15 feet below, a seemingly short fall that was utterly destructive. The train lay in wreckage at the bottom of the embankment, and it all happened so fast no one knew what the hell was going on. Wallace being Wallace immediately jumped up to help drag people to safety and tend to their wounds, but he himself was seriously injured with a deep laceration in his head, his arm was cut to the bone, uh, and he had a damaged sciatic nerve in his back. They were completely alone in this isolated spot for 12 hours before anyone went to look for them. Wally was a real hero that day, and when rescuers arrived, he insisted on being the last treated. He was back on the set when the cameras began rolling the next day. This was something the studio insisted upon. Wally was not okay, though. He was in excruciating pain. Now, today, production would have definitely been postponed after something horrible like this. (laughs) This is crazy. How many people were on this train? I don't know exactly how many people, but it was like a whole 
cast and crew and production people. It wasn't like passengers, I don't think, but like... But there was a bunch of people. A bunch of people. It was a disaster. I also feel like, isn't this a famous silent film where a train (laughs) like falls off the... uh, a bridge or something. I feel like I've seen that before. I think there were just a lot of trains in those movies. Yeah. So this is crazy that everyone just went back to work the next day after this accident. They would film around their bandages, like turn them. Like (laughs) it's ridiculous. Now, despite the fact that many were clearly in the need of recovery time, this was going on. Wally also had a concussion and was dealing with severe back pain so bad that he was having blinding headaches that were, even for him, like making him, like he's a real workhorse guy, like that yeah. type of guy. And even he was like having difficulty getting through filming. Production needed their star to be on point. So the studio brought in a doctor to help manage Wally's pain. He began to administer him morphine. I was going to say, was he giving him? <laughs> yep. To ease the pain. And Wally had a lot of pain. So the injections were constant. It wasn't too long before Wally was hooked on the drug. When he returned to Hollywood, he continued to receive morphine for his pain, and the studio was only too happy to keep one of their biggest money makers doped up and working. He barely took off time uh, when he returned from this Oregon shoot before he began working on his next picture. As his tolerance built up, his need for more morphine increased. Before Wally knew it, he had been relying on morphine for a year after the accident. The changes in his behavior were small at first, so they weren't really setting off alarm bells. He was slightly more fidgety and anxious. He had a loss of appetite, a little more irritable. And these things did sort of baffle those around him, but no one was like jumping to the conclusion like, hmm, I wonder if this was related to his morphine usage. Because, uh, I mean, it's very similar today. He's being given it, given the morphine by doctors. Right. What could possibly be wrong with that? Then his insomnia began. Now, I don't really know a ton about opiates. I've never, uh, I don't have a lot of experience with them. But apparently the morphine acted like a stimulant with Wally. Have you heard of this? I mean. Maybe in the smaller doses. I have no idea. That's never was my experience. <laughs> that's Well, that's, I mean, most people think of it as like, not being a stimulant. A downer. Because this is how he would keep his energy up, like getting rid of this pain. It would kind of give him this jolt initially. I think... But if he took a lot of it, he would be out. I think, yeah, if it's taking away his pain, that would probably increase his energy in in that respect. So, uh, and this, this supposedly leads to this insomnia as well. So he begins drinking whiskey to come down from the insomnia, uh, come down from whatever high he was getting from the morphine. On February 12th, 1920, 20, the insomnia was so bad that Dorothy finally calls the doctor in. And this was her first time seeing something where she's like, oh shit, this is not normal. According to Dorothy, I remember only too clearly the night I watched the doctor give Wally his first, sh- first shot to quiet his nerves and its astonishing effect. The old doctor had been summoned from his bed for half and for half an hour had tried to reason Wally into sleepiness. The argument failed. I lay in bed and watched with a fascinated horror as the doctor opened up his little black bag and took out a smaller case. The reading light at the head of Wally's bed glinted from the steel and glass tubes, which lay in the little case in orderly rows. Silently with a frown, the doctor prepared the shot. It was only then that she realized he's addicted to morphine. Like, And now all of these little things she'd been witnessing started to make sense. And in 1922 interview with San Fran- the San Francisco Examiner, 
She said it was months before I realized that the change in his disposition dated from that wreck in the mountain wilderness. Now in the light of later events and developments, I can see plainly, I can understand how it began and appreciate how he fell prey to the soothing, sweet, deadly promises of drugs. Now it is possible he was getting all kinds of drugs and injections from the doctors. I don't really know. Maybe that explains the um, energy. Wally continues working as well as keeping up with his normal slate of social engagements um, outside of the people he knows like that on, at Paramount and the people medicating him and his wife. No one knows the biggest movie star in the world has this morphine addiction at this point. In 1920, he begins uh, hosting debaucherous all-night parties at their Hacienda Park home. He earns the nickname Good Time Wally, and he kind of has an open-door policy, which quickly gets out of control. How does his wife feel about that? She doesn't like it. She actually goes to another room and watches from a distance what's going on at her house. Guests are just walking in. They're leaving the house with liquor bottles that they steal from him. And she's suspicious that there's more going on (laughs) than even she's aware of. Uh, And she's right. Yeah. Uh, He wasn't just being medicated by doctors. He had also started buying morphine from dealers who were coming to his home and giving him a lot of drugs. On November 25th, 1920, Variety reports the arrest of a man making a very interesting claim. According to the story, uh, quote, Los Angeles, Thomas... Thomas H. Tyner, alias Claude Walton, alias Benny Walton, was taken into custody uh, here on a local lot with seven bundles of heroin on his person, according to the arresting officer. He was arraigned before U.S. Commissioner Long and held for $1,000 bail. It is said Tyner declared he was delivering the dope to one of the best-known male picture stars on the coast and that it had been the second time he was engaged to deliver to this same star, whose wife in the hope of having him break the habit, is the one who informed the authorities. She snitched? She snitched on him. Wow. Because she wanted it to end, and she didn't know what to do. Yeah. Now, Paramount is in a panic, realizing that something has to be done about Wallace, and that panic is heightened when another celebrity scandal goes down uh, soon after. Labor Day of 1921, Fatty Arbuckle is arrested on manslaughter charges after the death of a young actress at a party he had in San Francisco. We covered this case, as I mentioned. The public outrage over this uh, really exploded. People were like, the sinfulness of the movie industry is at an all-time high. It was just all of the same sort of moral panic people. They always come out when anything (laughs) happens and try to make it about their their cause that they've always thought. Right. Yeah. So in order to save their profits, the studio agrees to the formation of a written code that industry industry players will have to abide by. And Will Hayes is put in charge of implementing moral and ethical responsibility in the movie industry. This becomes known as the Hayes Code. And we've discussed this before in several episodes, but it will probably be an interesting episode to do just really going into what it was and how it was implemented implemented, and what had what happened afterwards. So Lasky and Zucker willingly go along with this to save their business, basically. But it definitely came at a financial loss for them since they were no longer able to release all of the Fatty Arbuckle movies that they had filmed. They had to like completely like shit can them or whatever. Like, yeah. So that's millions of dollars that they weren't earning uh, from those films and whatever they spent. They didn't want that to happen again with Wallace Reed. And his problem 
was getting close to being discovered. These are all blind items so far. Less than a month after the Arbuckle scandal, Variety published another blind item. It is known the wife of one of the most popular of the younger male stars has time and again had the peddlers of dope supplying her husband arrested, but she's still been unable to get her husband to break the habit. When the William Desmond Taylor murder happened in February of 1922, things were even more tense. They were beginning to hear whispers accurately guessing the subject of these blind items. The studio knew their contract with Wallace was running out soon, so Instead of getting him help, they decided that to get their money's worth, they would push him to make as many films as possible before his contract ended and release them as soon as possible before any scandal broke, leaving them in a financial loss situation Dude. again. It's crazy. <laughs> they worked him to the fucking bone. Right. He's in, this, in a high state of addiction. Uh, he's not doing well. In May of 1922, another blind item, this time a notorious drug dealer named Joe Williams, was arrested inside the home of Wallace Reed. It was initially reported as a famous actor. Well, now people are going to put two and two together. (laughs) People are starting to do it. Over $1,000 worth of morphine on him. uh, And he said he's trying to sell it to the actor. Police do release a report that's like, the actor was not under suspicion of being a user or dealer. This guy was just in his house with $1,000 of morphine. Now, Wallace is definitely more on the radar now with this blind item. And Dorothy actually goes public with a defense this time. So she says her husband thought the man was there to sell him French magazines. Stop it. I'm not kidding. French magazines? French magazines. When he handed Wallace the French magazines... What I, I was like, is that we? <laughs> was we back then? Is what that, are French magazines? Is is it porn or a fashion magazine? I bet you it's art magazines that oh. have nudity in it. Okay, right? I I tried to find, but it was just everywhere I saw it was always reported as French magazines. I just pictured, which I think is funny. It's like a guy with a trench coat opening yes. it, and he has like a huge panel of like nudie magazines. Yes. But they're sort of artistic, like they're at the Louvre. See, because in in Dorothy's mind, she's like, well. This sounds, this is kind of embarrassing for my husband. So they'll have to believe that this is really what happened. Uh, And she said when he handed the magazines over, the drugs fell out of the magazine. Because I was like, well, yeah, they probably put them in the magazine. Just like a newspaper, right? You don't hand a bag of drugs. You have it in something. Um, This mini fury eventually like furor over this incident eventually dies down and Wallace resumes working because people bought the French magazine thing. That's how like beloved he was. But behind the scenes, Will Hayes really thought he had some irrefutable evidence um, that Reed was a junkie. He took it to Lasky. Lasky offers to have an independent physician monitor Wallace for two weeks and report back on his health. And Hayes agrees to this plan. After two weeks of living with Wallace Reed, the doctor gave Wallace a clean bell of health, saying he was 100% not an addict, (laughs) even adding, quote, I don't know anyone else I could live with like a Siamese twin for two weeks without wanting to murder, but he is unquestionably the nicest chap I've ever known. Now, this was a common thing at the time where (laughs) doctors would give clean bells of health to known addicts in the film industry, so... The fact that Paramount was like, okay, sounds like the truth to me is wild. And you have to wonder if they really believed it. 
Um, and but Will Hayes took it. Yeah, he took it. He also bought it, and they continued to push their star to churn out these movies. What they didn't know was during that two-week evaluation, Wallace had forced himself to go cold turkey, which is an incredibly brutal thing to do. The minute the doctor left, he was back on morphine. His next pick was to be filmed in New York City, and it was here he began to suffer serious physical consequences of his addiction. Chronic long-term morphine use causes the enamel of your teeth to disappear, and that leads to rapid tooth decay. He had to have nine teeth removed while he was in uh, New York City, which is very painful and led to more legitimate morphine uh, prescriptions for him. His health was really bad um, in other ways. He developed a cold. He got a 103-degree fever from that, and the studio insisted he continued working in this condition, once again bringing in an onset doctor to administer a slow, steady drip of morphine to him while he was working. That wasn't enough for Wallace, whose tolerance, once again, was very high, and he began buying from dealers in New York City. He barely makes it through the shoot before returning home that summer. He was definitely more noticeably frail and gaunt when he returned. He uh, began receiving telegrams from New York City about shipments. Dorothy noticed this, and she immediately exploded, realizing these shipments were morphine being sent to him through the U.S. mail from New York City. Wow. Her husband was worse than ever, and he responded to her accusations Probably in a typical addict way, with outrage, he had a childish tantrum. He denied that he had an addiction. He said Dorothy didn't love him anymore. He went on and on, spewing out all his rage and hate before eventually breaking down into sobs, telling Dorothy he was ashamed and didn't want her to know. He thought he could handle it and she would never have to know. He promised her they could work together on it after his next picture and get him clean once and for all. His schedule of work, exhaustion, and drugs continued until that time uh, was going to happen. But another odd thing happens this summer. Shortly after coming home in August, the Reeds adopted a three-year-old girl they named Betty, which is kind of an odd thing to do when you have a husband who is addicted to morphine (laughs) to take on this baby out of nowhere who's already three years old. She's like, this is going to fix the marriage. Well, it caused a little bit of an uproar in the scandal rags at the time. The rumors were this baby was a result of an affair Wallace had. Uh, There was a big movie gossip magazine that wrote this long, detailed article about a pretty young extra showing up at the Reed home, Dorothy answering the door, and agreeing to care for the baby because the young woman couldn't anymore. Dorothy, of course, denied these rumors when the press came a-calling for her version of the story. But it was always sort of a mysterious thing because it just seemed odd. By the fall of 2022, Wallace was... Oh, my God. 1922. (laughs) I'm so, I can't like not do it. Wallace was once again trying to quit cold turkey and Dorothy was helping him out. Um, On the set that he was working on, things were not going well. He actually was blinded by the Klieg lights. This is like a thing that happened back then. People would get Klieg light blindings. Really? Because if you like had it shine right in your eyes, it could like literally temporarily blind you. Because it was so bright. It was so bright. And he's obviously a mess to begin with. So he had no vision for days. Holy shit. And he's actually, once again, forced back to set before he even has 100% vision back. Get back on the grind. 
Uh, according to an assistant director on one of his last movies, 30 Days, Wallace's addiction was basically an open secret now because before he was managing to get it done, now he's a mess on set. He recalled one horrific incident. Quote, he sort of fumbled about and bumped into a chair and then just sat on the floor and started to cry. They put him in a chair and he keeled over. They sent for an ambulance and sent him to the hospital. So he's not doing well. Wally and Dorothy actually go to a mountain retreat where once again, she tries to help him go cold turkey. But uh, decades later, according to his granddaughter, this was also a disaster, and Wally somehow managed to get morphine delivered to him in the mountains and overdosed up there in the cabin. Dorothy had to finally admit she needed help, and you know, she described his struggle at this time uh, in an interview, saying, it was pitiful and tragic, yet more than that, it was heroic. It was the heart-rending effort of a great, fine, brave boy against an intangible horror that clutched him like an octopus catching its tentacles here, there, everywhere. She and Wallace agreed he would check into Banksia Place Sanitarium on December 12, 1922, to help him kick his drug habit once and for all. By the time he entered the sanitarium, the formerly 180-pound man was only 130 pounds. Dude. Wallace said to Cecil B. DeMille before going into the sanitarium that he would either come out cured or not come out at all, and he was sadly right. Lasky and Will Hayes and other people who knew about his addiction all acted shocked upon hearing the news, like like they didn't know. Um, the only person who truly didn't know and was in the dark about it was Wallace's mother, Bertha, who Dorothy had been lying to from the get-go about Wallace's addiction. Six, day, six days after entering the, LA, entering, the LA Times officially breaks the news, and they land interviews with both Dorothy and her mother, Alice. In the interview, Dorothy says, Wallace always drank to some extent. Now, this is the days of prohibition, so this was already a crime that she was admitting to. There, I'm sorry, can you clarify, the LA Times breaks the news that he's entered this, yes. this treatment facility? Yes. Okay. Uh, and about two years ago, he began to use drugs. He was very ill at the time, had suffered an injury to his head, and there was a great deal of work at the studio, and he felt like he had to keep up. So this is why she kind of presents this reason why he became addicted to drugs, which is true. It is what happened. Um, and Alice's, Alice, Dorothy's mother, basically confirms um, that all of it started from this unfortunate act. Accident. She also makes sure to mention about the house, saying it was not a home anymore. It had turned into a roadhouse with all of these parties and yeah. people coming in and out. Um, but she got Dorothy needs Alan on so bad. Dorothy, <laughs> Dorothy needs Alan on. Dorothy went on to say in the interview, "My husband is a sick, sick boy. I don't know if he will recover, but he has broken his habit and won his fight. I guess just by entering, he's not doing drugs anymore. He made the fight of his own free will and has won it by the strength of his own mind and will. I know that he will come back." Now, Dorothy maintains constant update dates, something she says Wallace wanted her to do. In uh, a New York Times interview, she goes on to say things like she he thought he was going to die. Like she's giving these dramatic updates. He thought he was going to die the other night and he was so brave about it, but he didn't want to die. He wanted to live for Billy and Betty and me. He was break, breaking down and weeping, asking, how did I let this happen to myself? Why couldn't I have stopped long ago? I thought I was strong. I thought I knew myself. I can't understand. These were all incredibly optimistic updates on a very dire situation. Uh, 
these are not accurate. And these will lead to people distrusting Dorothy Mm -hmm. later on when she kind of changes her tune. Um, 30-year-old Wallace Reed is dying at this point, basically. And she's trying to put this positive spin on it, making him this hero, which is like, I mean, you can't really like fault her uh, for it, but I don't know. It just, it leads to trouble for her later on. Because a controversial aspect of this case is her use of the press to both get her husband in line by doing these like raids and having these people, these blind items leaking. Yeah. And then to also snow everyone on these certain occasions, like when she's like, oh, it's the French magazines. Uh, So she spent a lot of time denying his addiction, and now she's there using the press to talk about how great he's doing. But also she starts... um, She's still in denial. She's in denial. She's just in a different kind of denial. Yeah. I I feel like all of her inconsistencies uh, make sense because she's ultimately always protecting him. That's why I said she needs Al-Anon. Yeah. (laughs) They didn't have it yet, but she needs it. No. I mean, she's an enabler, which is another word they they don't really have. So... She also begins talking to the press about the evil of narcotics and pushing the idea that he shouldn't be shamed about his addiction and tries to appeal for empathy for her husband. Um, So in Hollywood Babylon, Kenneth Anger really pushes this narrative that Dorothy used her husband's illness to benefit herself uh, and her career and that she may have even been behind his death conspiring with studio heads to get him to the sanitarium in order to euthanize him. Uh, that's what he claimed. I mean, this is, look, we all know Hollywood Babylon as great of a book. It is. It's not, it's not an accurate book. No, it's a juicy read, however. (laughs) Um, but obviously those stories took hold and a lot of things in the, that book or both of them, people still believe. Um, so I do believe she was trying to advocate for her husband before, even if it was enabling and after his death. Uh, and in fact, she turns that into advocating for every person who is, uh, has an addiction. Now, once again, I want to reiterate a thing we've said several times in many episodes when we're talking about famous people who have struggled with addiction. In this time period, this is not considered a medical issue. It is a moral failing. That's people, what they consider That's it. what they considered it. People look at these addicts as being bad, like or right. deserving what's happening to them, right. et cetera. Obviously, that's changed slightly for most people. There's still people who do think that way. Yeah. Um, so the puritanical fucks in the country really rally around this story and run with it, tying it to the indecent film industry, which is cre- uh, clearly ruining all decency in the country, etc. So this news of his uh, stay in the sanitarium also get Congress all up in, up in, up in arms. Uh, they're disgusted with Hollywood as well, and they... Um, you know, have several proposals of anti-drug laws demanding, and they demand that Will Hayes clean up the drug problem in Hollywood. Right, like addiction. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like this is the first time addictions ever existed is with the advent of Hollywood. Yeah, I mean, it's all stupid. Another controversy regarding the case is whether or not the treatment used to cure Wallace actually lead, led to his death. At the sanitarium, he is treated with something called the Barker Cure, In the book by E.J. Fleming, uh, it says the doctor who ran the sanatorium used the remedies of a doctor named John Scott Barker. He had an Oakland drug treatment facility that was raided numerous times. Uh, Quote, his most famous client, actress Juanita Hansen, said the cure consisted of a cocktail of unidentified pills and medicines and a rigid diet 
to extract the poisons that remained in the system. But these pills were basically replacing one addiction with another. Like the pills they were giving them were equally addictive in a different way. It was also revealed that Wallace had been treated with something called the Krebo method. This was a daily mix of injections, enemas, and pills that contained Krebo and Curar. And Curar is a plant that is in uh, from South America that's used as a um, arrow poison. This this makes people die. They like they 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 it paralyzes their skeletal muscles, causing them to asphyxiate. So this is basically a poison that's in this medicine. Um, and people can die in seconds to 20 minutes. I mean, people really did not know what to do with alcoholics. Right. And drug addicts, same thing back then. Yeah. And this concoct- concoction gets injected into the patient's chest um, and has side effects that include nervous system dan- damage, cramping, dysentery, and dehydration. He would administer these shots himself at home to himself. He was not under a doctor's care. So uh, he had checked out of the sanitarium? No, he did this before he went into the sanitarium the, trying to get clean. Oh my God. So he came into the sanitarium after doing this, then gets treated with the other like remedy, like old school remedy right. that didn't work as well. So people are like, did those make him even sicker by the time he got in? Like, yeah, probably. While in the sanitarium, he comes down with influenza. Uh, obviously this can be incredibly deadly even when someone is in the best of health and his immune system was just shot at this point. All of his systems were shutting down. He eventually lapses into a coma and comes out. Uh, the com- uh, when he comes out of the coma, the doctors tell him the only thing they can do to save him is administer small doses of morphine. Fuck. And he refuses. He says he wants to go out clean and would rather die than return to morphine slavery. Uh, and on Thursday, January 18th, 1923, uh, not yet 30, he dies in Dorothy's arms at the sanitarium. The official cause of death is listed as hypostatic congestion of the lungs and renal suppression. So basically he has this, um, influenza and all of his system. I mean, he's just, it's everything. Yeah. It's a Uh, result of his addiction. Exactly. He would not have been in this position if he had not been addicted to morphine for so long the world is stunned like this is a very young man he was very vibrant and all of a sudden he's dead and they literally just found out about the addiction they didn't know it was going on for years but still it's shocking right uh, even if they did now dorothy turns her grief into rage she holds a press conference to announce her plans to avenge wallace's death she hands a list of names over to the police, people she say participated in his downfall, and this list becomes known as the Hollywood Hellraiser list. <laughs> I don't think it's anyone famous, but it's all these low-level drug dealers, people who came to the house to party, whatever. I don't think anything ever came of it. She's just in that grief rage moment. Yeah. She also begins her anti-drug act- activism. In one of her first public speeches, she scoffs at the idea that this is a problem that only immoral Hollywood faced. She said her husband was no different than many soldiers and other everyday people who had been prescribed morphine due to injury. These are not illegal drugs. They were being given to them by medical professionals uh, and maybe due to ignorance of how opiates work, turn people into addicts. And these people were turned into addicts through no fault of their own. Uh, they trusted these doctors to be uh, caring for them, uh, et cetera. And that's, she's accurate. Um, as we said, this is still happening today with like Oxy. These people are having pain and they get this drug and it turns them into addicts. 
Um, so she said her husband was able to also charm doctors into prescribing the drug to him. And he, of course, thought he had this knowledge of pharmaceuticals and medicine. And that made him feel like he had things under control when he obviously didn't. Um, so I think that's also very common. People think if it's a prescription, it's okay. Yeah. Like there's nothing, you can't do anything wrong with it. And we all know, uh, that's just not true. She also claimed that morphine led to his alcoholism as well, since he began drinking to cover up the effects of morphine, basically like, I'm not high, I'm drunk, like as if that's a better thing. And this alcoholism, of course, made things worse. She then began working on an anti-dope propaganda film uh, that she produced with the help of Thomas Ince called Human Wreckage. This film showed poppy fields, the production of opiates, uh, it's an educational film, but it also has sensational aspects to it because it will show eventually the horrors of a drug addiction. These films are very popular during this period and you know throughout the early uh, half century, half whatever, from the 1900s to the 1950s. I can't think of the word for it. And this was used to stimulate public reform. She wanted uh, things to happen and things to change to help these people. Uh, These were shown around the country, and oftentimes they were accompanied with a live lecture. Now, even though the film is very sensationalized in many ways, once again, she kind of has the right idea here. Um, She's really trying to get the message out that addiction is a disease and that addicts should not be shamed in order to encourage them to come forward and seek help before it's too late. She doesn't want them to be shamed about their addiction. This movie grossed three times the production cost, and Dorothy was now a celebrity activist filmmaker. The movie earned enough money to support her family, and she started a production company as well as the Wallace Reed Foundation, which was a sanitarium that helped poor addicts receive treatments. She continued making more of these movies. Uh, she kind of became a pioneer for, for both female directors and exploitation pictures, After losing a lawsuit related to one of her films, she ends her movie career and purchases an apartment building uh, somewhere in West Hollywood. One of her tenants is a post-scandal fatty Arbuckle, and he lives there before he dies. Now, another interesting tidbit, her credit on the films that she produced was never Dorothy Davenport. She was always billed as Mrs. Wallace Reed. And this is believed to be the inspiration for the iconic moment in A Star is Born when after the suicide of her famous husband, Vicki Lester introduces herself by saying to the audience, this is Mrs. Norman Maine, which is a tribute to the man she loved and lost. Uh, and that's the Wallace Reed story. Wow. Dorothy dies many years later and she has a basically normal life after the film career ends. Yeah. Um, but it's a pretty interesting one. Damn, what a crazy story. <laughs> I, I honestly, my memory of this was just like, oh, he was a drug addict who died of an overdose. Right. I wasn't even, acu- that wasn't even how he died. Like, and some people speculate, they're like, it honestly would have been a less painful death than what he like went through because he was suffering so long with all of these illnesses. And the Barker method. Yeah. That's like crazy. trying to solve it was just like a disaster. Right. Uh, so he went out like, not in a peaceful way at all. Right. It was awful to the end. Very uh, ugly death. Very sad. Yeah. Wow, um, Desi. Um, no, I never knew like the full true story of that. Um, so yeah. Well, thanks, Desi. You're we'll, welcome. We'll post some pictures on our Instagram page. 
We're going to do our after show now, which is available on patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We got some stuff to talk about. Bye. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.